The Lord be with you. Um, today is the fourth sermon in a series of five about providence and creation care. And the title or the subject for today is Manna in the Wilderness. So I share a, um, a teenage memory, 1984, I think, um, the movie Karate Kid with Ralph Macchio and uh, Pat Morita. Um, and uh, Daniel, if you know this movie, some of you are older or younger than this movie, but I imagine images of it or its storyline are familiar. Uh, Daniel has been um, beat up, and so he wants to become a karate expert so that he um, can defend himself. And um, so he goes to Mr. Miyagi, who um, offers to teach him uh, karate. But before he teaches him, uh, Daniel has to go through this uh, week of work. Um, waxing on the cars and waxing off and painting the fence up and down and each of these movements is very precise and Daniel learns to breathe deeply while he does them and lo and behold these practices turn out to be the very skills Daniel needs to become the karate expert he wants to become um, if we take that analogy and think about the manna and the wilderness it is the practices in the liturgies that God is going to have Israel do for 40 years to make them the people he wants them to become in the land when they arrive. So these are um, liturgies. In March I preached a sermon like this uh, touching some of these subjects. Liturgies of scarcity. Uh, the manna scene that God gives this food each morning um, for the Israelites to eat. And this is going to teach them how to live. It's going to teach them how to manage an economy. But to understand that, um, we really do need to back out for a minute and get a bigger picture. It's um, another childhood memory, a Mr. Rogers moment, if you know these, when he would invite you as a friend to come behind the scenes and learn something um, that is important about how our world operates. And so we need to know about Israel's context. What kind of world is this spoken into? Because it's not spoken into the modern world, especially not into America. Uh, so uh, here is um, two things about Israel, its land and its neighbors. This is um, very much why this law is set up to respond to these two things. So here is the land of Israel. Uh, it's in the uh, highlands of the Levant, that area kind of between Egypt and Mesopotamia on the other side. And it's this higher area of land. Uh, it has no major water sources. There's no Nile or Tigris or Euphrates, these major rivers that funded the kind of growth and the populations in those two parts of the world. Um, the largest body of water is a Dead Sea. Um, so the land is dependent on regular rainfall. Um, and it tends to get that um, six to seven years out of ten, three or four years out of ten, it has irregular rainfall, which means no rain, or rain too early or too late and destroys the harvest. And so you can imagine um, a highly uh, at-risk agricultural operations here. Uh, crop success is maybe 30% or 30% failure, so 70% success most years. Uh, and then pestilence and mold would ruin a fair portion of that. Uh, so if you can imagine a world completely different than ours, uh, you're living pretty much at the whim of God and good rains and no molds or plagues that come through and destroy your food. It's a dangerous place. You know, every hundred years you'd have a major 
um, famine leading to death of, of huge parts of the population. So nothing like our world of Eden with a Wegmans or grocery stores all around us where we can buy and take what we need at a moment. Um, highly risky world. So God's sending him to that land um, to live. And you may have heard that land described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, scholars, to be honest, don't know what to do with that phrase. It's not found in other places in literature, ancient literature, that would help us understand what it means. We've taken it in America to mean, you know, the soil lands of the Mississippi Delta or something like it's this rich land. And it's probably not what it means. Um, some scholars think that it could mean, it's just exaggeration, it's hyperbole. Like this is not milk and honey. This is hard land. Um, some take it to mean milk and honey, meaning milk, but fat and animals, like you're gonna live off of animals there, which they would need to. And you're gonna find things on the land you haven't known before, honey. Honey's uh, beehives, we know they collected bees now. So um, you're gonna live off of things in the land that you haven't done in Egypt. They're coming from Egypt. so. That could be what it's going to be. Look, you're going to learn a new way of farming. Um, whatever it means, this is what we know. You could live there. Um, it's not that fecund, rich land that we tend to think it is. It's, it's hard. It's a very difficult place. So the, the manna discipline is going to teach them something about that. Uh, second, um, the manna liturgies are going to... Um, help Israel think in a way different than their two major neighbors in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. I say Mesopotamia, think of it later Babylon or Assyria, these major empires that had huge populations for their day. Uh, so what's it about these two nations that God doesn't like? Uh, so first of all, uh, they've got very good land. God chooses not to give that land to Israel. It's like the land of Sodom, you know, that really rich land. He doesn't going to give that to them. He's going to give them a land more kind of given to scarcity. Uh, in these major populations land, you can grow a population quickly. And so you get a king who immediately takes a standing army. Okay, so now you've got lots of land, a king, and violence to defend, to protect, to uh, ward off enemies. Uh, and then, But you've got this land and these waterways, and so you can build this huge industrial complex, agribusiness, uh, sometimes scholars call it. That's, these are the ancient major agribusinesses of the ancient world. Um, so you can work tons and tons of land and food and control the food. You control populations around you in the globe. And so these two nations are going to be able to do that in the areas around them. It's about power. And they're going to run these systems. They, they, um, they ruin the land in many ways. The, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they rerun the rivers and cause oversalination or, or um, degrade the soil with their water. So this is big operations, damaging operations. Um, but when they do that, uh, how are they going to run their industry? Well, with slaves. They're going to import slaves or bring them from war, and then those people are going to work the land for them, hard. We know this is Israel's experience coming from one of those nations, Egypt. They worked the land hard. And it's distinct there, and I think it's a right moment to mention it. Israel was hated in Egypt. Their religion, their skin, their race. The hated people lived on the land to work it for those who owned it. Wealth in these communities um, accumulated upwards into the upper tiers of the population, and the wealthy got wealthier, and the land got rougher, and the poor got poorer. Sound familiar? Historically, 
I was thinking this week in light of events in our midst um, that in America, most of the farmland is owned by whites. In 1910, uh, 16, 15% of um, farmland in the US was owned by African Americans. Um, over the last hundred years, a pretty systematic uh, approach of moving African Americans north into populated urban areas, that land is now only owned, 1% of the land in the US is owned by um, African American farmers. So there's been a redistribution of land, a redistribution of wealth. The wealthier and the whiter you are, the better access you tend to have to good foods, to good grocery stores, to good farms. So this story of Egypt and of Mesopotamia and what happened to those communities, we maybe know that one better than we know Israel's. And God's going to train a people not to be like that. And how's he going to do that? By giving them manna daily in the wilderness for 40 years. A whole generation will die off while another one learns a new way of managing an economy. Five lessons I want us to think about that come from this um, manna in the wilderness. As you've heard in the reading, um, Israel takes its food each day. If they try and save any hoard and go get flour and seeds and toilet paper and store it in their basement, uh, it will rot. If they um, try and harvest on the Sabbath, there won't be anything there. Okay, so this, this practice for Israel will teach them five things. Okay, first, uh, the food is God's. The land is God's. For the land is mine, it says in Leviticus. It is not your land. It is yours to steward. A couple weeks ago, I preached this sermon on home ownership. God has given us a share in his home. It's his land. The food will come from him. And so we don't own it. We don't um, rule on it. We establish it as a stewardship. And we, what we take from the land, we take with gratitude, with thanks. And it comes from his hand. Uh, rule number two, or principle number two, lesson number two, uh, goods hoarded will not last until tomorrow. Uh, these things that we store up for ourselves. And I think largely this is a spiritual lesson um, for Israel because we can build big barns and store them up. That's what was Israel was doing for Egypt when it was a slave there, was building these storage cities for its massive accumulation of wealth. And God is teaching a principle about hoarding, about the desire to take more than is needed, that it will rot in the wilderness. There's a lesson about gratitude, about momentary day-by-day -day living. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, let us live off of the food before us. Three, uh, principle um, number three, Sabbath. On the uh, Sabbath, uh, Israel would, the day before the Sabbath, they would take a double portion of the manna and not work and go out and collect on the seventh day. And it's preparing them for when they get into the land that on the Sabbath, they won't work. Now, if you've been listening and thinking about what that land was like, and you had a God say to you, oh, don't work on Sunday, you'd think it was crazy. And it was. It's insane. No nation, no other religion that we know of has a principle, one in seven like this, to rest the land when the people know that there may not be good rains and crops next year. And so God is testing them. When you go work on the Sabbath and don't trust my hand, I won't bless you. 
And Israel will, in its later days, we know, not keep the Sabbath and call it a delight. Uh, principle number four. The way to exist in the land is daily bread, to take in what is necessary for the moment, to learn contentment. Manna is daily contentment with what comes from the hand of God. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, um, if you're interested, he's in the fourth century. I cite him occasionally. He's one of these major Christian writers early in the church to help us think about scripture and theology. And Gregory said that um, he was speaking on the prayer of Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread, or as Matthew has it, our bread for today. Um, and Gregory said, we have had our bread for today when we have made no one poor by our eating and being satisfied. Uh, Gregory's point, he calls it um, the prayer of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer for daily bread is an economic prayer. It's not about, uh, God, give me what I need because I'm going to be hungry today. It's about us. It's in the plural. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us collect so that our community collectively eats and cares for one another. It's already built into the manna. Go out in your families and take what's needful for each family and no more. And so these communities would go out and take. Uh, the same way at the Passover that the lambs are divided up by families. Those with more give to those who have need. And that collective kind of habit is being built into Israel's new way of having an economy. It is not me who fills my barns and storehouses. It is a community who draws in with interest for the whole. Uh, and principle number five, if you trust God in doing these things, I'll make you rich and abundant. It would be tempting to think that God is anti-abundance and anti-city and big urban centers. He's not. Revelation 21 and 22, this image of a grand city, uh, these populations, the city very often symbolizes God's blessing. The question is, how is the city built and why? And how does it function? And so God says, if you obey me and live happily and contentedly and generously by scarcity, then I will bless you with abundance. But if you cling to abundance with power and violence and with slavery and with discrimination, I will give you scarcity. And he does. Start with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all the way through Malachi. That is what's played out again and again. The kings build up. They have storage and power. They pray to fertility gods and goddesses for rains, and God gives them famine as a punishment their nations. That is what's being trained into the people in this manna of the wilderness, to learn a new way to think about our goods and about our economies, about our people, and about the good of the land, and caring for them with love. Um, I don't know uh, whether the pandemic that we're in with the coronavirus uh, is given as a curse for our misuse of wealth. But I won't say it is not, because it is perfectly timed. It is a time for our country, for our church, to think again about the economy that runs our people, our nations, our culture around us. 
Is it a manna economy or is it an Egyptian and Mesopotamian economy? Is it one that has brought together collectively to do good or is it one that has abused and misused the things around us? It is, if you'll notice in Jesus' prayer, our Father who art in heaven, a Father who comes to us to ask us to do this, and it's a Father who gratefully receives our repentance. After Jesus' prayer for daily bread comes the confession, forgive us our sins as we forgive our sinners, those who sinned against us. There is a moment for the church I want to call us into at Bread of Life and to pray for the church abroad and across this country who lives in great abundance. Think in this moment about our use of resources, the economies and the narratives that run in our minds and come in repentance to bow, to ask the Lord's mercy and to tell him to retrain the way we think about the things he has given to us.